Welcome to Rose Tinted, a podcast where we challenge the limits of our nostalgia by re-examining some of our favourite childhood movies. I'm Ollie Chip. And I'm Paddy HK. And today we will be discussing The Mummy. Let's, let's talk. Yeah, let's talk about The Mummy. Um, so before we do get into talking about The Mummy, though, I should, as always, try and clarify a few things about this podcast for people who may not have heard it before. So Ollie and I are old friends who decided to make a list of our favourite childhood movies so we can revisit them one by one to see if they still hold up to scrutiny. Some loose rules for our selection process, the movies have to bear some kind of significance to our childhood or early adolescence, and we try to only select movies that we have not watched since that time. So with that out of the way, Ollie, why don't you tell us a little bit more about The Mummy? So, uh, yeah, The Mummy. Interesting one this week. I just wanted to, like, prefix this first of all by saying that the thing with this movie is, like, it's been relatively hard to avoid because it's been on ITV2, like, every day for the last 25 years. So, like, I've seen, like, bits and pieces of it across the years, but I've never, like, dedicated myself to sit down and watch it in its entirety. So this is a slight cheat one, but I think we would be doing the 90s a disservice if we didn't talk about Brandon Fraser. Yeah, I've just realised as well I'm doing this entire podcast the disservice because I actually have a mummy t-shirt and I'm meant to wear it for this podcast recording <laughs> You're and I don't kidding have it. me I'm like in fact you know what fuck this I'm getting it <laughs> right, I'm gonna take bets on what this t-shirt looks like I think it's got a big old close-up of Brandon Fraser on it with his delicious cheekbones <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. So if it just in case this does make the edit, the T-shirt I have chosen to wear for this podcast episode is a smouldering close-up of Brendan Fraser starring in The Mummy. And the caption reads, The Mummy, more like The Daddy. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know why I own this. <laughs> you, you bought this T-shirt and you're like, one day, <laughs> yeah. one day, I'm going to have a moment in my life where this T-shirt will be appropriate. And only one moment where it will be, and it's this moment right now. Absolutely, unless I go to like a midnight screening of this movie at some point, which, let's face it, following this podcast, incredibly unlikely. <laughs> incredibly unlikely. Well, let's go back to it, shall we? Yeah, so tell me a little bit more about The Mummy. Um, so it's um, Universal Studios, and, and that's a really important talking point, I think, because they own the rights to a lot of these old monster movies. Mm. Um, and this one is basically, it's like a pseudo-remake, really, of the 1932 The Mummy. Mm. Um, it's written and directed by Stephen Summers, who hasn't really done massive amounts like of directing that's noteworthy other than this franchise. Like He's done bits and pieces... Um, but nothing really on his CV stuck out to me other than the Mummy franchise. And he's been a part of all of those. Yeah, I didn't recognise his name at all. I thought I did know who he was. And then, I, yeah, I really didn't. Um, it stars Rachel Weisz and Brandon Fraser. Um, and I think they are the, the main selling point of this movie, if I'm honest. Um, they do a really sterling job. Um, it was released in 1999 on an 80mm budget. Mm. Which I think is actually pretty modest, considering some of the things that happened. And it took 416 points. Point four million dollars at the box office, 
which is like yeah good work yeah smashed it yeah absolutely i do remember i do remember this movie being particularly popular yeah back in the day yeah i think this is actually a really appropriate movie for this podcast because it's one that especially following the 2017 remake or whatever it was um it's one whose popularity seems to have endured and people Mm. like to remember it very fondly yeah well i read an article in preparation for this podcast saying that it's like our generation's Indiana Jones. Yes, that's. it's really interesting that you should say that because I actually said in what I enjoyed about the movie, it feels very much like a spiritual successor to Indiana Jones. Mm. Um, so it's really it's really interesting that you should bring that to the table. Uh, but yeah, I absolutely agree with that take. Yeah. Um, so in terms of plot outline then, just quickly, as always, um, a librarian come archaeologist hires a gun-toting adventurer to discover the lost treasures and artifacts of a forgotten Egyptian kingdom. Unfortunately, an evil undead high priest Imhotep is in inadvertently resurrected and must now be stopped before his powers threaten to destroy all of humanity. Very good summary as always, my friend. Uh, And then my one-line summary, Brandon Fraser beats up corpses for fun. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, very good, very good. (laughs) Um, So I guess we've we've sort of touched on this already, but why is this on the list for you? Um, Yeah, I mean, it was just one of those movies that I wouldn't say it was one of my favourite childhood movies, but it was just, like you said earlier, it was always on. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason why it's stuck so heavily in my psyche is because I'm a massive horror fan now, basically. And any movie from my childhood that gave me nightmares... tends to have a bit of a lasting legacy in that regard (laughs) and so that actually segues quite neatly into what i remember about the movie i remembered the scene where mr burns who is one of the cowboy adventurers who goes along for this mission not the simpsons mr burns just in this film (laughs) (laughs) no not the simpsons character because that would be a strange crossover i'm all right with it thinking about it now i'm okay with it he would be the mummy though obviously (laughs) But there's a scene where Mr. Burns, who is the one member of the cast who wears glasses, he loses his glasses in the tomb and is then so short-sighted that he can't see anything. And he obviously immediately gets abandoned by all his friends. And then the mummy comes and removes his eyes. Mm -hmm. And that scene stayed with me because it made me realize how fucked I would be if I ever lost my glasses in an underground tomb because I am also very blind. So that caused me a lot of short-sighted anxiety as a child. Um, In that very, very likely event that you're going to be caught short in an underground crypt being chased by the undead. Oh, mate... I wouldn't stand a chance. Um, I, I related hard to that scene. You wouldn't stand a chance with glasses, mate. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. That's very true. Um, and the other scene that I specifically remembered, which really stuck with me, this actually haunted me for many years, is the scene where Omid Jalili's character is killed by a scarab beetle. Mm. So the scarab beetle buries itself under his skin and then you can see it moving under his skin and then into his brain and he's just running around screaming. That horrified me like genuinely (laughs) really horrified me and that really stuck with me yeah so that's the reason it made the list for me was because this is probably one of those movies that contributed to my love of horror movies in general it's not a horror movie but it has certain sequences that really stuck with me and i carried forward into my enjoyment of the horror 
the genre. Yeah, the, the Scarab Beetles just generally are the thing that I remember mm. most vividly. And I think it utilizes that monster really effectively. Like they're sort of like this swarm, this this tidal wave of carnivorous beetles. Just every moment with the Scarab Beetle, either individually or as a big swarm, that really stuck with me. Um, obviously, like there is no such thing as a Scarab Beetle like this. Like Scarab Beetles exist, but they're not like these like ravenously hungry predators that are made out in this movie. Um, yeah. But I think they're actually like super effective and arguably more terrifying than the titular mummy in terms of a villain. Yeah, I would agree. And also back then, obviously, we didn't really have Google. So yeah, are these actually real? Yeah, literally as a small, short-sighted child with an insect phobia, <laughs> this movie stayed with me for many reasons. There was no reason for me not to believe they were real. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I guess we've kind of touched on it just then, but we may as well just get straight into it. What were some of the things that you enjoyed about this movie? Okay, I'm just going to start by saying I fucking loved this movie. Did you really? Yeah, I was on board the whole way. I loved it. Oh, that is so interesting. Oh, this is really cool because obviously there's been a... um, Obviously in some of the other episodes we've recorded, it's been completely the opposite. Yeah. And I think I had a much less enthusiastic reaction to you, but we will get to that. But like, yeah, please, please tell me what you enjoyed. I think the reason... I enjoyed it is because I got on board with what it was attempting to do. It was deliberately being a throwback movie to like not only the 1930s monster movies, but also like, you know, the swashbuckling sort of silent era movies as well. And I just got fully on board with the campy dialogue, the ridiculous overacting and all of the melodrama. I was just like, right, I'm in because the movie doesn't pull any punches in that regard. I think that it's just like relentlessly campy and melodramatic and you either basically you have to be on board with it or you're gonna hate it yeah see i would actually agree those were some of the things that i really enjoyed about the movie i was fully on board for all of that i thought the performances were great everyone is completely committing to their roles like even if <laughs> yeah. even if they're hamming it up not a single person is phoning it in they genuinely believe in these characters and are having fun with these characters which is an absolute delight i thought for the most part the characters are really enjoyable to be around um i particularly enjoyed uh, Jonathan uh, Evie's brother he's like the comic relief character and he could have been really annoying but I think I thought he actually adds a lot of charm to this movie uh, I call him knock off Hugh Laurie yeah, yeah that's exactly what he is budget Hugh Laurie <laughs> yeah. um, and I think to your point as well I loved the idea of this movie as an homage to classic adventure movies of mm. the past it was just so charming like Brendan Fraser seems to be channeling not only Indiana Jones but also as you mentioned like Errol Flynn um, and the movie itself it also nods to things like Lawrence of Arabia mm. which I loved seeing that you've got these like sweeping wide desert shots of people dotted on the horizon traveling on their camels and stuff which I thought were really lovely um, so yeah I'm fully on board with that I, and especially I think the first act of the movie you know yeah. the, the first act of the movie is super tight super well paced and entertaining it sets up the premise and what to expect from the movie really well and it just gets you on board straight away yeah I think that um, all the action sequences they just nail that sort of like low stakes fun flamboyant combat do you know what I mean mm. and I think like one of the things that adds to that aesthetic is the decision to give Brendan Fraser, not Brandon, I've been calling him Brandon all the way <laughs> along so far, but the decision to give Brendan Fraser dual revolver pistols. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like that, 
that shit's just cool. Like you, it, it's so movie. Dual pistols yeah. is so like cinematic, and uh, just the way he operates those pistols is just is just cool and fun. Yeah, Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I was just fully on board with that. I mean, it's not without its issues. Like, I've got an extensive list of shit to talk about it, but this is the only movie so far where I was entertained throughout it that's really great to hear that's actually really encouraging because um i had some issues as well that we're going to talk about and mainly to do with uh the pacing and the middle section of the movie Mm -hmm. but i will hold off on talking about that for a little while um just to go back to some of the other things that i enjoyed there were some really nice moments of planting and payoff and specifically with those two scenes that i talked about earlier namely the scene where mr burns dies and the scene where omar jalili dies Mm. um so when they're on the boat and Mr. Burns is playing cards, he says without his glasses, he can't see the deck to cut it, you know, and then, you know, 20 minutes down the line, his loss of his glasses in what is a terrifying nightmare scenario for myself, <laughs> it ends up being the thing that leads him to his doom. And then Omid Jalili's character repeatedly states how much he doesn't like bugs. Yeah. And then bugs are the thing that end up killing him. So there's just nice little character moments throughout the movie that sort of pay off in uh, interesting ways. So yeah, I really i just really enjoyed that it's, as well. it's it's hollywood filmmaking 101 really isn't it yeah like in terms of its narrative payoffs to those setups um yeah. i really like the two leads mm. i think they they work particularly well like brendan fraser basically he is channeling prime um harrison ford and yeah. i just think he's he's just brilliant from, he's, yeah. he's such a likable, interesting, dynamic hero, and like I say, hero in the like the literal sense of the word. Like, there's no real dimension to that. He is just your quintessential Hollywood hero, and he plays it to pretty much perfection. Oh man, he's so American, it hurts. I know it's like, brilliant. It's so, like you mentioned the dual wielding pistols thing, but there's one scene that really got a laugh out of me, which is when he's on the boat. And Evie, uh, Rachel Weiss's character, is chastising him for something. And his response to her chastising him or challenging his masculinity or whatever is he just <laughs> to rolls throw guns out. guns on the table? Yeah, he just rolls out all the guns and ammo he has with him on the table. Like, it's almost like, here's my dick. Boom. <laughs> like, lay it on the table. It's just so over the top and ridiculous. But it is also um, very funny, very endearing. And it's just like, they just literally, how can we create the most american character we possibly can and they just went there which was which was very fun they just ha- held no punches that is, that is because all the other characters essentially in this movie uh um, all the other like main characters i guess are all british and that is like the british perception of what an american is and i think yeah, that's yeah. why it plays out so nicely because they are almost like you know poking fun at an american stereotype but at the yeah. same time utilizing it effectively so i yeah. i just i think he was brilliant and it's a real shame that he he isn't in more more stuff like this because he fits this role almost perfectly, I think. Well, there, there was literally, what, two or three years where he was just like a household name and then suddenly he vanished. And he wasn't even the first or even the fifth casting choice for this movie. There were so many other people they mm. wanted to cast in this role ahead of him. And, it's, and I'm actually so glad that none of them got it because he is really perfect for it. But I actually just want to rattle off some of the people who were going to be cast in this, if you don't mind me doing so. Okay, yeah, no, I'm interested now. Okay, I'm going to get Google up. Wait, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Before you do that, shall I try and guess? How many are there? So there's five people who it was offered to before Brendan Fraser, so have a guess. Um, well, Tom Cruise has got to be in there somewhere. Top of the list. Top of the list, mate. He was the top choice. Yeah. He's got to be in there. Um, 
Is Harrison Ford on the list? No. Okay. He maybe is a bit old by this point, right? Mm. Um, who else was there in that period? It's definitely sort of like Pirates of the Caribbean era Johnny Depp, but I didn't think at that point in time that he would be there. Nope. Um, oh my God, I'm struggling already. Do you want me to reveal the list? Because I think some of them will be really um, not surprising, but there's one person on this list who I think would have possibly made a better casting choice simply for how hilarious it would have been. If you say Jim Carrey, I'm deleting this podcast. No, 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 <laughs> not Jim Carrey. Um, so the standard household names who were who were considered first were, um, yeah, Tom Cruise, uh-huh. Brad Pitt. I would say I was going to say Brad Pitt, but I thought that was too obvious. Matt Damon. Ugh. and uh, Ben Affleck. So there's some, Jesus you know, fucking white bread casting choices for you. But yeah. you know who you know who else they considered who would have actually been incredible in this movie, in this role? Fucking Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> <laughs> that is incredible. Could you imagine how much more bombastic this movie would be if <laughs> Sylvester Stallone was in that role? <laughs> That's incredible. Because he's not even, he's not much of a swashbuckler, is he? No. He's just more like a, a ball of clay. Uh, that would have been absolutely amazing, though, I think, if they'd have had Sly. But to be honest, Brendan Fraser is undoubtedly the best casting choice for this movie. 100%. You know? 100%. And um, it was only really because of his performance that I stuck with this film. Yeah. Uh, I think without him, it, it would fall apart. Like, I really liked some of the other less like important characters. So I really liked um, Winston, the old timer war veteran who flies the planes yeah. he's basically like this alcoholic he's living in egypt it's obviously post-war and he's living in egypt and he's really upset that his entire squadron has died in the war and he's still alive so he's this yeah. really tragic figure and all he wants to do is die in battle and then he get <laughs> and then he gets his wish at the end it's, i just liked him a lot yeah just desperate to recapture his glory days. yeah i thought it was great yeah yeah i agree Definitely agree. So were there any other specific scenes or moments that stood out to you that you really wanted to talk about? Well, I... I like I think a lot of the when when Imhotep's trying to get his power back by basically I have to probably explain this bit actually these American grave robbers open up a sarcophagus or like a box and it says on the box like a warning like please don't open this box if you open it then you you're going to be cursed or something along those mm. lines and they obviously open it and then they get the curse on them and the and the curse is that Imhotep is resurrected and he has to suck the life out of those that opened his tomb in order mm. to fulfill his power. And I think all of the moments where those characters die are awesome. Yes. Like they're literally like do you remember Froobs back in the day? Like those little yogurts and tubes. They did literally die like that, don't they? They just get all of the yogurt just gets squirted out of them like a toothpaste tube. And I thought and I thought that was really good. There's a wonderful death sequence, um, which I think is Mr. Henderson. He's one of the cowboy guys. He's in his hotel room and then the sand comes in through the window and it's so Indiana Jones. It just cuts to his silhouette being lifted up in this tornado of sand or whatever, this cyclone of sand. And yeah. you just see the silhouette like a doll spinning around around and then it cuts back to sort of like the disheveled corpse and i thought that was just like a really clever way of showing that death it was like really interesting and also generally speaking and this is this will be a i think a neat segue into our next section but generally speaking i thought the way they incrementally built up sort of the mummy's regeneration was really effective um so actually why don't we just if you've got nothing else to say why don't we just move on to talking a little bit about the visual effects in the movie and what we thought about them generally okay 
So before we do that, I'm just going to clarify. We sort of were faced with a bit of a dilemma in previous episodes because we kept having to address the topic of the CGI and we were worried that if we say, oh, the CGI is bad in each movie, it's going to start sounding repetitive. And reductive. And reductive, yeah. So I propose to you, rather than just ignoring that, why don't we just go all in with each episode and we'll have a dedicated CGI section to talk about the good and the bad bits of the CGI. So generally speaking, I think... This movie for me, in terms of its visual effects, is very 50-50. The execution of the mummy is fantastic. The way he gradually reassembles and the way he's sort of animated, I think, is really good. There's one scene in particular where he's almost fully regenerated, but he has, like, a fleshy hole in his cheek, and then a scarab beetle crawls up his neck and into the hole, and he just chomps on it without thinking. And I was like, that is so cool. And I think, generally, the mummy holds up. It looks really good. Um, Are you joking me? No, I'm, I'm genuinely not joking. But as a point of comparison, I think this is why I thought it held up. Within the context of the movie itself, you know, I thought generally speaking it held up. Do you know what didn't hold up at all? Anytime they were clearly on a stage and they used the Phantom Menace digital backgrounds that were so popular at the time, they looked absolutely genuinely awful. But I actually thought the mummy looked great. Was it photorealistic? No, obviously not. Did it suit its purpose? As in a bit fun, a bit camp, a bit cartoony? Yeah, I thought it was executed well. But I'm just going to start calling this podcast Fuck CGI. Right. <laughs> because... Nothing nothing achieved in CGI in this movie particularly, but in any movie that we've watched today, could not be achieved more effectively with decent prosthetics. And I think that actually the mummy itself would be a hundred percent more terrifying if they tried to, you know, sort of John Carpenter it up like the thing mm. and make it all like gross and decaying and rotting and having actual prosthetics. Because there is actually a moment in the film, I think he's halfway through being regenerated, and they do actually dress him up in prosthetics. Mm. Um, I can't remember which moment it is, but I think it's sort of like the second or third victim that he sucks the life out of. He turns and faces the camera and he's not CGI, he's actually in prosthetics and that was the most effective use of that special effect like in right. the whole movie for me anyway um i think that the establishing shot of this movie is a big old track isn't it like a craned tracking shot of ancient egypt and it's just like the lowest grade oh. cgi like you could ever imagine god it looks awful it actually like it made me feel like physically unwell looking at yeah. it it was just disgusting yeah um and I hated every moment of CGI in it. I don't think any of it was effective. I mean, I, I like the concept of the mummy regenerating over time, but every time it cut to the mummy and then cut back to characters being scared of it, I could only imagine them pretending to be scared of something that isn't there. I'm going to counter your point and say that you did point out earlier that you thought the scarab beetles were effective and i actually thought whenever you see the hordes of scarab beetles moving as a, a one single mass i thought that held up really well yeah but i think the difference with that is that that's not a particularly i don't want to say it's not particularly difficult because that's disparaging but like you know they've basically made black water haven't they all of the cgi that required detail was shit no, for sure. I can take your point there. But the point that I'm specifically countering is the idea that there was nothing in this movie that couldn't have been done better with prosthetics. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I see that point. So, so things like the Scarab Beetles, I think, 
um, were necessarily done with CGI. But like, yeah, I could totally see why you found The Mummy to be unconvincing. But I went into the movie expecting it to look <laughs> awful. Yeah, and then when the first thing you see, like you said, is that is that landscape shot where it looks absolutely diabolical. And then The Mummy gradually being introduced to us, I thought it did look a lot better than I expected it to. I, I had very low expectations of the CGI in this movie. I had I had no expectations and, and they were utterly fulfilled. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, fair play, fair play. But um yeah, I don't really have too much more to say about the CGI, so shall we shall we move on and talk about the things we generally enjoyed a bit less about the movie? You you are so pragmatic when you say this. This is the bad section, Paddy. Oh, so you're still here. We could problems. So what are some of the things you enjoyed a little bit less about this movie? Um, it's interesting that you said that you thought budget Hugh Laurie was an, an interesting element of this film. He annoyed the he annoyed the shit out of me from like pretty much start to finish. Yeah. Um, and I just think it's because the happy, funny sidekick character, I just it just really gets on my wick. Yeah. And um, what I thought it ended up doing actually was being a detrimental effect to Rachel Vice and Brendan Fraser. Uh. He was removing screen time from the two people who I was more interested in looking at. Um, looking at. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say it's a complete slip up, but that is actually true. I enjoyed looking at both of those people intensely. Yeah. But I just think uh, maybe points to a bit of a wider issue with this film is that I think there are just one too many comic relief characters. They're all sort of like caricatures, a lot of these comic characters. And I think mm. they could do with cutting them down a little bit. So you've got like Benny, Brendan Fraser's, I don't want to say friend, but he sort of like betrays him multiple times. He's like a cowardly figure. Um, you've got obviously um, Knock Off Hugh Laurie. And you've also got people like uh, Amy Jalili, who I know we're going to talk about in a moment. Um, but there's lots of characters in here performing the same role. And you could probably have bundled them into one or two characters as opposed to five or six. Yeah. And you've also got the World War One pilot who you mentioned earlier, who's yeah. also a bit of comic relief. Yeah. So yeah, I, I take your point. I think that's absolutely correct. Um, it is a bit all over the place in that sense. I guess the reason I liked budget Hugh Laurie was just I think he genuinely seems to be a good comic actor so even if he wasn't you know well placed in the movie I thought he was a good comic actor and I bought his chemistry with Rachel Weiss like they had a real sibling connection and I bought the whole annoying brother thing but I totally accept why that wasn't appealing to you you know I think I think they could have made more of his like if he was just like a full-on pisshead they indicate (laughs) that he's got a bit of a drinking problem but like they never fully explore. I think if he was just like an unreliable pisshead, I think that would have yeah. been more interesting. But they didn't make enough of that. Um, so yeah, I mean, another main thing that I had a problem with is that there were a lot of scenes in this movie that ironically, well, they were the most boring scenes in the movie and ironically they happened in a library most of the time, which I thought <laughs> yeah. was like an appropriate location. But there's a lot of scenes where they just sit in the room and explain the plot to each other. Yeah. Uh, and that happens like two or three times, literally in pretty much the same space. I was just like eye rolling a little bit. I'm like, oh, come on. Like, I know what's happening. You don't need to explain all of this to me constantly. Um, and that started to get a little bit irritating. But then I sort of had to remind myself who this film is aimed at in terms of audience. Yeah, I mean, that really was the thing that I think ended up ultimately ruining my enjoyment of this movie. It's such a shame as well. Uh, and it all ties into sort of pacing and structure. The first act, like I said earlier, it 
sets it up so well. The pacing is wonderful and, and it introduces all the characters and it just really gets you ready, you know? It gets you into the spirit of adventure and you can't wait to go on this quest with these characters and it sort of... a punctuates the exposition with these little action scenes Mm -hmm. that really keep the excitement building you know you've got the opening battle scene and then you've got the the skirmish on the ship and it's just this wonderful balance of character moments and exposition and action and comedy so the first act spends all this time building that up right and then they reach the tomb so they reach the tomb and you've got two death scenes you've got Jalili's death scene and you've got the Egyptian diggers who are burnt by acid when they trigger a booby trap and then that's where I was like because I remembered a lot of these key scenes you know and they were in the tomb and I and all of this happened like Jalili dies and the diggers get burnt by acid and I was like oh shit this is where it's all gonna start (laughs) kicking off and then for some reason they're out of the tomb again and they're just sitting around in the desert mm. talking. Mm. And I was like, okay, that's that's a bit of a strange choice. And so they're in the desert and they reawaken the mummy by reading the book. And it's like, okay, and then they're back in the tomb and that's when Mr. Burns loses his glasses and is presumably killed. And I'm like, oh shit, it's kicking off now because the mummy's, the mummy's alive now. Now we're in for it. And then for some reason, they go out of the tomb again and they go back to a fucking hotel. They go to a hotel to do even more talking. And they're literally all just <laughs> sitting around in the hotel and then the mummy comes to the hotel and starts picking them off one by one and so eventually after multiple encounters with the mummy they end up back in the tomb for the climax of the movie but why didn't the movie just stay in the tomb from the first moment they went in there it just totally messed with the pacing and my enjoyment of it it's like the middle of the film is completely unnecessary it's boring padding where they flip flop between moments of peril and lounging around either in the (laughs) desert or in a hotel and it is such a shame because the initial tension that's established by them being in the tomb in the first place is completely disrupted time and time again and all these kills that we were mentioning earlier these interesting death sequences would have been so much more effective had they happened in the tomb like Mm. uh, and had they been in a more interesting environment and so by the time i reached the climax of the movie i just didn't even have the energy to care anymore Mm. i was so fatigued and so frustrated by the constant breaking up of the pacing i just wanted it to end and i remembered thinking as i was starting the movie i looked at the runtime and i remembered all of the key points like i said sort of like the general flow of the narrative and i looked at the movie and i was like how is this two hours long like how is this two hours long and the reason it's two hours long is because it just pads out the middle so much well i i I made a i I made an observation when i was watching because i i felt the same thing as you i was like fucking hell like how long has this been we haven't even seen the mummy yet the Mm. first time the mummy appears is 62 minutes into this movie so over halfway through before it even you even get a visual of what the mummy looks like so that whole first act is is a lengthy preamble to the Mm. to the reveal and um i think this could be a really cool like origins story imhotep's story didn't need to be wrapped up in this film like they obviously made did they make two others or just one i can't remember um they definitely made one other there could have been two but yeah the mummy returns came after this yeah so i think like it would be cool if he wasn't defeated in the way that he's defeated and you could actually do cut this movie down by half an hour and mm. have it as like the origin story of how imatep has arisen and then in your second movie you do imatep doing horrible stuff and then is eventually defeated because actually yeah. in the second movie i know that we're not going to talk about that in any detail here but in the second movie they, they construct a whole other villain 
And they didn't yeah. really need to because the villain of the first one is fucking awesome and they could have done a lot more with him. Yeah, I agree. But also, I also think that even if they did conclude his character arc in this movie, there was enough there for, let's say he still only turns up an hour into the movie, right? There's enough buildup of tension and action mm. for it to be worth that payoff, you know? Because the first deaths, you know, as I mentioned, occur because of scarab beetles and occur because of booby traps, right? And then the first time the mummy attacks anyone, you don't actually see it because you're seeing everything through the perspective of Mr. Burns without his glasses, mm. you know? And so it almost could have been this really interesting, like, Jaws thing. It could have almost been an homage to Jaws, but instead of a shark in the ocean, it's a mummy in a tomb, you know? And it, I don't know, it, there, there was just a missed opportunity there. There was no reason for them to keep going in and out of the tomb, in and out, in and out, in and out. Um, so yeah, I really hate to say it because, like I said, I was on board for the first act. I was completely on board. And then the more they kept pissing me around in the middle, the, the <laughs> less interest I had. I started the movie with a real sense of excitement and fun, but I just ended it with frustration and boredom, basically. Yeah, I think like if, if anyone else was the lead character in this movie, I'd probably feel the same way. But basically those middle bits with people lounging around, it's just Brendan Fraser in a room like spewing out one-liners. So like, I'm okay with it. Like I understand why it's really boring and repetitive. They keep coming out of the tomb, but it gives Brendan and Fraser a chance to flirt with Rachel Vice in a in a non-threatening location and um, I'm okay with that I suppose yeah fair um, so we sort of started touching on how we would change the movie which is obviously how we tend to wrap up the episodes but before we do that let's just go back a little bit and talk a bit more about some of the more problematic elements in the movie specifically Omid Jalili's character mm in my opinion. Yeah, well, and mine, actually. I think, like, they do slip into, and it's a shame that they do this, but they slip into, like, lazy stereotypes really? um, that revolve around Orientalism. So Orientalism is basically, like, pseudo-ignorant imitations or depictions of, like, the East. Yeah. Uh, and it sort of came about in the 30s, 40s, 50s cinema. Orientalism often goes hand-in-hand hand with sort of lazy lazy stereotyping and then you have this one character who is like the flashpoint for all of all of what is wrong with orientalism yeah absolutely and it is such a shame because um i actually really like omar jalili's character to an extent in terms of the comic relief he provides because he's such a charismatic performer and it's very much in keeping with his persona mm. which is a whole other conversation in and of itself is like Omid Jalili was basically able to become famous by adopting mm. this stereotypical persona which in his stand-up is meant to be deliberately satirical you know of racism and of stereotyping mm. but in this context it's very much like his character feels like little more than a vehicle for tired racial stereotypes and then the movie attempts to play those stereotypes for laughs and there's a couple of moments that stuck out to me so there's one point where Jonathan says I never did like camels they smell they spit they're disgusting and then it just immediately cuts to omid jalili spitting so there's this like immediate connection drawn between the camels and those traits and then with jalili and it's kind of like that whole really toxic stereotype of people of that ethnic background and then uh, when jalili gets woken up at one point he yelps no more goat soup and it was just like so just like oh oh it really left a bad taste in my mouth and they also constantly refer to how bad he smells and call him like our smelly little friend and it's just it's aged really badly man like really badly he has no he has no sort of redeeming features whatsoever does he like he's greedy like he's he's only motivated by by wealth 
And actually, that sort of leads into what the main thing I would change about this movie. So should we just should we just do that now? Yeah, we can go into the changes that we would make. Yeah, absolutely. It does exist. The Book of the Dead. Book? Who cares about a book? Where the hell's the treasure? This, gentlemen. This is Okay, so I think the main change that I would make is actually keep the lazy stereotyping in there. You have to bear with me here, Paddy. Mm -hmm. I saw the colour drain out of your face when I said that. (laughs) (laughs) Thank God podcasts are an audio medium. (laughs) Just a sweat beading on my brow. Yeah, (laughs) but what I would do, and you know, this is, you know, turn of the century movie. Like, I know that we're 20... one years in the future here, 22 years in the future. Um, but even in 1999, there's an expectation that you're not just racist in your movies. But the way I would change this movie is I would just make, maybe it's Rachel Weisz's character, maybe, maybe not. But you make one of the characters in this movie incredibly well-educated in the traditions, the customs, and the history of the of the place that they're inhabiting. Because Rachel Weisz does, surface level, have an understanding of, like, ancient Egypt. But I mean, like, someone who has lived there maybe their whole lives, has adopted the customs and understands them. And make other characters in the movie completely ignorant of them, make them look like idiots, make them be disrespectful and terrible and take it all for granted for them only to be punished later on for that ignorance. And I think that having a character in there that just does that a little bit more would actually be an in, be a positive message about yeah. not judging people on these old, outdated stereotypes. Yeah, and I would actually go one step further than that and just say, well, you could literally just cast someone of Arabic descent or Egyptian descent yeah. and in one of those main roles, you mm. know, rather than having them just be a punchline or someone who's veiled in, you know, Orientalist mysticism. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, I mean, fundamentally, yeah, like you say, address the stereotyping issue by actually commenting on it you know yeah have a character who is the voice of the audience who is understanding of the culture Hmm. or is is a you know a part of that culture and then poke fun at the people who are ignorant to it and this movie almost does the exact opposite of that no yeah it punches down yeah um but yeah do you have anything else you would change about the movie in terms of restructuring or anything like that the only other thing i was going to mention is that i think you could give rachel vise more agency than she has her character is clearly like the brains of the operation and there's lots of moments where the men are like oh their their party is led by a woman they're never going to find anything and and it's a little bit sort of like surface level challenging of those roles like i think it would be better if she was more able to wield a weapon or you know wasn't damsel yeah exactly and i think changing that would be um something that i would definitely encourage if we were to ever have the option to do that before we go fully into the other changes we'd make to the movie i just want to do a quick side note here there is a wonderful podcast that i listen to called the bechdel cast which is a feminist movie podcast they look at movies through a critical feminist lens and they did cover this movie and they talk a lot about the way Rachel Weisz's character is portrayed in the movie and the way her relationship with Brendan Fraser is portrayed in the movie. Mm. I wouldn't really be able to do justice to that conversation without just regurgitating their points, but I would highly recommend that you and anyone else who is listening to this episode go and listen to the Bechdel cast's episode on The Mummy. But yeah, other things that I would change about the movie personally, as soon as the characters enter the tomb, 
they're just there for the rest of the movie until they make an attempted escape. So yeah, you could have the tension slowly build up towards the final climactic mm, battle yeah. and then somehow incorporate the aeroplane scene into the final scene of the movie. So the scene where they get into the aeroplane with the World War One veteran to go back towards the tomb, have that... <laughs> going the other way. <laughs> yeah, going the other way, because that obviously makes much more sense. Like, So have the aeroplane scene as the final scene of the movie, and you could have it be sort of like Jonathan's reading from the book that makes the mummy mortal again while they're on the plane and trying to like avoid things. That's, yeah, that's cool. I like that idea. You know, and then they make him mortal, and then they machine gun him down whilst on the plane, or maybe have a sword fight in the desert or whatever. Or, or Winston just nosedives his plane into Imhotep <laughs> yeah. as he's running through the desert. Absolutely, yeah. And that's how he has his death or glory yeah, moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that just about covers it, man. Mm. So I guess the only thing left to say is, do you think you need rose-tinted specs to enjoy this movie, or do you think it holds up to today's standards? I think this movie absolutely holds up to today's standards, and I think mm. the main reason why I think that now is that Universal have tried to reboot The Mummy again, and they did it in 2017 with the Tom Cruise movie, and that movie is fucking bad. Like, yeah. it's so bad. They tried to make this, um, basically, to compete with Marvel, they tried to make this, um, it was called The Dark Universe, so they tried yeah, to make this cinematic universe. Um, I'm going to just plug another thing as well, like you did a little bit earlier, but um, there's a YouTube channel called Red Letter Media, and they do a fantastic breakdown of The Dark Universe and how mm. ridiculous it is. But the reason I'm mentioning this here is because I think that if you compare it to a, mo a very modern rendition of this narrative, the 1999 one beats the living shit out of it, and that's why it stands up, because it's clearly just miles better than one that was made three years ago. Ah, see, now this is interesting because we've reached an impasse in our opinions, because for me... I'm saying this in the kindest and most pragmatic way possible, but I actually do think you need rose-tinted specs to enjoy this movie, and here's, here's my reasoning behind it. When I was thinking back about this movie, like I said, I remembered all the key structural moments and remembered thinking it was amazing. And then I watched the first 20 minutes and I was like, oh my God, this is going to be amazing. Like, I'm actually really here for this. This is great. And then it really lost me in the middle. It really mm -hmm. did. And I think my perception of the movie had really survived on me forgetting about large chunks of the narrative. So yeah, for me, I think it is, it is a mixed bag as always. Mm -hmm. But for me, I think you do need Rose Tinted Specs to appreciate this movie on the same level that you did as a child, basically. Cool. So this is like the first movie that we've actually had a, had a difference of opinion at the end on. It'd be interesting to see what other people think when, when they watch it, whether or not they need it. This is one of the movies where me saying you need Rose Tinted Specs to enjoy it's probably controversial and i and i acknowledge that like i think there is a lot of stuff to still enjoy in this mm. movie but i had to go one way or the other by the end of it fair play fair play yeah. But yeah, I think that just about does it. Before we go, I just want to say a massive thank you to Dilettante for letting us use their song My Dress as our theme tune. So go and check them out if you can. But yes, I have been Paddy. Uh, and I've been Ollie. And we have been Rose Tinted. Thank you very much for listening and we shall see you all next time. <laughs>